Good morning. Let's pray together. Father, we approach your word humbly and invite you to allow it to penetrate our hearts. And I pray that you would use your word to touch and transform our lives. Make us more like your son, the Lord Jesus. Help us to live lives based on your word that will honor and glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. In August of 1914, Sir Ernest Shackleton and a crew of 27 men set out from England on a ship called the Endurance to become the first men to reach the South Pole and actually cross the entire continent of Antarctica. In January then of 1915, the ship became caught in an ice flow in the Weddell Sea and they were stuck there through the entire Arctic winter, our summertime, their winter time. And then when things began to break up in the spring of Antarctica, along about October, Shackleton and the crew tried to open a passage to get through, but ultimately had to stand helpless and watch the ice crush and sink their ship. Now, picture their situation. It's 1915. They have no radio transmitter. They can't call for help. And just as they were leaving England the previous summer, World War I broke out. The focus of the entire world was on what was going on in Europe. Shackleton and his crew were on their own. No one would be coming for them. More than 1,200 miles stood between them and the nearest outpost of civilization. Picture it, 1,200 miles. And if they were to survive, they would have to ride the drifting ice flows northward, and then when the ice began to melt, they would need to take their tiny lifeboats and sail hundreds of miles across the Drake Passage, one of the stormiest sections of open water on the planet. Their amazing story is chronicled in a book by Alfred Lansing simply called Endurance. If you are looking for a good read, one that makes you wonder just how much a human being can take, you really owe it to yourself to read about the life of the Apostle Paul. Because <laughs> that guy knew endurance. By the time he wrote 2 Timothy that we've been looking at now, he had endured so much. It, it boggles the mind. I, I don't think we can even imagine what it would be like to be tied to a whipping post and receive 39 lashes. Paul endured that. 
at the hands of the Jews. This was in the synagogue, and, and the Jews were pretty careful about not exceeding 39 lashes. But I'm not going to volunteer to be tied to a whipping post and lash 39 times. And Paul endured that five separate times. He also had endured being beaten with rods by the Romans, and they weren't careful about counting. And he had endured that type of beating three times. He had been stoned and left for dead by an angry Jewish mob. And he was shipwrecked too, but not just once. He was shipwrecked three times. How do you get shipwrecked three times? And he'd been imprisoned multiple times. And wonder of wonders, he kept on going. If ever there was a man who understood endurance, it was the Apostle Paul. And he gives us insight in this section of 2 Timothy that we're going to look at this morning into how he could endure all that he did. And the question that, that comes to me as I look at this is, First of all, what am I being asked to endure for Christ? I, I look at what Paul endured, and I look at what I'm being asked to endure, and I just go, I, I'm not really being asked to endure much. And then the second question that occurs to me is, just how much would I be willing to endure for the cause of Christ? It's a question I think that we can all ask. Our brothers and sisters around the world are suffering for their faith. I read about it every day. Uh, I have a, an app from Voice of the Martyrs called Pray Today. It's made mention of in, in your notes for further thought. And it tells about the suffering that they're enduring on a regular basis. And I look at that and I go, I, I am not suffering. And yet, we ought to be prepared to, should suffering come to us, we shouldn't be surprised by it if it comes to us. So grab your Bible and turn again to that section that Jonathan read from 2 Timothy, starting at verse 8. And I just want to read it again to kind of bring it into focus. And Paul writes this, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure... We will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. The passage is all about endurance. It's a theme that runs throughout the book of 2 Timothy, and especially through this second chapter. Paul knew the challenges that Timothy was facing and would face. And he could draw on his own experience of suffering to encourage Timothy to endure hardship as a good soldier of Christ. 
Take a look at some highlights with me in chapter two. Look at verse one. Paul tells Timothy, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. You need that if you're going to endure. Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Verse three, he tells Timothy, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Verse five speaks of the effort that an athlete has to put in in order to win a crown. Verse 6 speaks of the hard work that a farmer has to put in. Verse 9 speaks of Paul's own suffering for the gospel, even as he writes, bound in chains. Verse 10 speaks of Paul's own enduring for the sake of the elect. Verse 12 tells what will happen if we endure. It's all about endurance. This passage lets us know that living for Christ is going to have its challenges. It'll require endurance. But more important, the passage doesn't just say, hey, suffering's coming, so good luck. It tells us how we can endure. And Paul reminds us that when we are called upon to suffer, there is a bigger picture than just our circumstances that we need to keep in mind. And in this section, I see three things that Paul asks us to think about when we are called upon to suffer, when we wonder if we can endure. And these three things can be the key, I think, to our endurance. Remember Jesus. Remember the elect. Remember this saying. Starts out in verse 8 with the word remember. It's a rich word. It isn't just the opposite of forgetting something. What it means is to actively call something to mind. Think back into Old Testament history, Exodus chapter 2. God's people are being mistreated at the hands of Egyptian taskmasters, subject to uh, harsh conditions, rough labor. And they call out to God. And and we find in in verse uh, 24, it says this, God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Now, it's not that God had forgotten his covenant those 400 years while they were suffering. But what it means is that God was actively calling his covenant to mind, that he was actively calling his people to mind in order to do something on their behalf. So when we are asked to remember Jesus here in verse 8, it's not that anyone had forgotten him. It's to call him to mind, bring him into the forefront of our mind. Think about Jesus. Remember Jesus, Paul says, risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel. Remember Jesus. Set your mind on him. Think about Jesus when you need endurance. Now, what in particular about him? Two things. He's real and he's risen. He's real and he's risen. He is the promised Messiah. He suffered and died for us. He is the long-awaited one, finally come. We just sang that song, uh, Come Thou Long-Expected Jesus. That song embodies the longing of his people 
uh, for many, many long years, anticipating his first coming. And now, what the prophets had foretold had come to pass. Emmanuel, God with us, was here. Uh, He's not only come, though, but he has come in order to bear our sins, to pay our penalty in full, to absorb the wrath of God on our behalf. And he is risen from the dead victorious. He is real, and he is risen. You're probably thinking, Ken, you got the order wrong. Yeah, I did. I took it chronologically. Paul didn't. And we got to ask ourselves, why didn't Paul say he's the descendant of David? He, he is the Messiah, uh, the promised one, the long-awaited one, and he is risen. Why didn't he take it chronologically? Take a look down a little further in verses 16 through 18, and you'll see there is a particular problem there in Ephesus. Paul says, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They've got a problem there in Ephesus dealing with the resurrection. And so when Paul speaks about Jesus and are calling him to mind, the first thing he says is, remember him risen from the dead. He is risen. And notice, well, one more thing about that is is that that Jesus uh, is our hope in his resurrection, He was resurrected, and we will be too like him. And the problem here in verses 16 through 18 is these men were teaching that the resurrection had already taken place. It's not like they missed it, like, you know, sorry, you you missed the resurrection, but that the resurrection is only going to be a spiritual one. It's what we call a realized eschatology. It's it's the idea that, that there will be no ultimate resurrection of the dead that all of the resurrection we're going to experience is the physical one that we experienced when we became believers. And that's it. That's what these folks were teaching. And what that does is it undermines our hope. We look forward to the day when these bodies of ours will be transformed to become like Christ's resurrected body. I'm looking forward to that experience. And Jesus, in his resurrection, is the first fruits. And we, the rest of the harvest, will follow. There's a great hymn that we only bring out on Easter Sunday morning, and it's too bad. Uh, Christ the Lord is risen today. It's such a rich hymn. And the final verse of that has some wonderful lyrics. It says, made like him, like him we rise. Hallelujah. Ours, the cross, the grave, the skies. Hallelujah. Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. We look forward to following him in that resurrection. And these people were denying that there would be one. 
And what that does is it calls into question the very resurrection of Jesus. If you look back at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul spends some time discussing that. So they're undermining our future hope, the resurrection of the dead. But notice one other thing. Paul doesn't just say that Jesus was raised. Look at the text. It says he is risen. Now, if you're into grammar, it's a present perfect participle. And right now you're saying, I'm so glad you pointed that out. Uh, A participle is a verbal noun. And, And the present perfect tense means something has happened that has ongoing results. It's the difference between saying he was raised from the dead and he is risen. It's not just a historical fact, but it's a present reality. He is risen, and he is the first fruits of the resurrection. We follow him. As certainly as he is risen, we will be also. You want endurance? Think about Jesus. Think about Jesus. Real and risen. The author of Hebrews said the same thing, essentially, different author, Different, uh, different way of approaching it, but the same idea. Hebrews uh, chapter 12, if you flip over there, says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. What endurance? Look to Jesus. Look to him. Think about Jesus. The second thing that Paul asks us to think about, and in the outline that I furnished for you, it says, remember, I was keying in on that verse in uh, verse 8, that word in verse 8, but I think perhaps a, a better way to put it is think about, because it's not just the opposite of having forgotten, it's, it's actively thinking about. So think about Jesus, think about the elect verses 9 and 10. He speaks in verse 8 about the gospel, and then he says in verse 9, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not chained, it's not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Think about the elect. They are waiting for the message that will save them. Paul points out in verse 9 that he is suffering for the gospel. He's not suffering because of dumb decisions he's made. We do plenty of that, right? No, I do. He's not suffering because of people he's offended. He is suffering for the gospel. He's in chains this time, different from his first Roman imprisonment that we read about at the end of the book of Acts where he was basically under house arrest and was able to have a pretty vibrant ministry there. This time, he's probably in the Mamertine prison. This time, he is in chains. 
This time he has no freedom of movement. He is shackled, but the message of the gospel, he points out, is not. Therefore, he says in verse 10, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul is suffering for the sake of the elect receiving the gospel. You might be thinking, well, if they're the elect, why worry about them? They're okay, right? They'll get reached. God will bring them into his kingdom. I don't need to involve myself. Well, J.I. Packer wrote a great little book to counter that kind of thinking, a book called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. That book dispels the idea that because of divine election, we don't need to share our faith. Because God has elected the elect, we don't need to reach out to them with the gospel. That the elect are elect, and we don't have a part to play in reaching them. Packer's point is that evangelism is made possible because God is sovereign. Because God is sovereign, the gospel will get to the elect, and we have a part to play in bringing it to them. They need to hear the message of the gospel that will save them. Apart from hearing the message of the gospel, they can't be saved. Flip over to Romans chapter 10, if you will. Romans chapter 10. Take a look. Let's start at verse 13. Romans chapter 10, starting at verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Okay. Verse 14, he asks the question, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? How are they going to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. The elect need to hear the message of the gospel that will save them. We have a part in bringing it to them, and that part may involve suffering, may require endurance. It certainly did for the Apostle Paul. One of the readings we had earlier in the service was from Acts chapter 16, where Paul wanted to get into Asia with the gospel, but it tells us there that he was prevented from doing so by the Spirit of God. No, you're not going to go into Asia. So he set his sights on Bithynia. And the passage tells us that God wouldn't let him go there either. So he ends up in Troas and has a vision of a man from Macedonia saying, come and help us. Macedonia is in Greece. It's, it's in Europe. He wanted to get into Asia. He wanted to get into Bithynia. But he was being called to Europe to bring the gospel to God's elect in Europe. John Piper told about a time when he heard J. Oswald Sanders speak. J. Oswald Sanders wrote a, a book called Spiritual Leadership that is just worth reading. He was 89 years old when Piper heard him speak, still active, sharing the good news of Christ. And Sanders told the story of a, an indigenous missionary in India who walked barefoot from village to village preaching the gospel. He had a lot of hardship. 
And after a long day of many miles and a lot of discouragement, he came to a particular village and tried to share the gospel there, but he was driven out of the village and rejected. And so he went to the edge of the village, dejected and laid down under a tree to sleep from exhaustion. And when he awoke, people were hovering over him and the whole town had gathered around to hear him speak. The head man of the village explained that they came to look him over while he slept. And when they saw his blistered feet, they concluded that he must be a holy man and that they had been wrong to reject him. They were sorry, and they wanted to hear the message that he was willing to suffer to bring to them. Advancing the gospel, reaching the elect, requires endurance. Some hard things happen as we are faithful to that great commission. And all that really matters is that the gospel is being advanced. One other passage you can turn to really quickly is in Philippians chapter 1. It's, it's a great passage. Philippians chapter 1, starting at verse 12. Take a look. Paul writes this about the advance of the gospel. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, his first imprisonment in Rome, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. He's seeing this as a good thing. And then he says this, takes it another level. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? What then? What, what do we conclude? What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Isn't that amazing? He is imprisoned. People are, are using that as leverage against him to exalt themselves and, and to preach the gospel uh, with distorted motives. And Paul looks to that and goes, praise God, the gospel is going forward. That's all that matters. Advancing the gospel requires endurance. You want endurance? Think about the elect. They're waiting. They need to hear the gospel. We have a cause that's worth suffering for. Third, think about this saying. And Paul goes on in verses 11 to 13 to share a trustworthy saying. Think about this saying. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Think about this saying. It will keep you going. 
This is the fifth of five trustworthy sayings of the Apostle Paul. We saw three of them in 1 Timothy. There's one more in Titus and then this one here. Paul may have been the author. He may not have been the author. The authorship of it really doesn't matter. It may have been a hymn that was circulating in the early church that Paul picks up and uses because it ties in so well with what he wanted to say about endurance. This trustworthy saying has four parts. Four statements, each one of them beginning with an if, describing our actions, and each one of them going on to show Christ's response. And there is a a tie-in between verse 10, where he says, I endure, for the sake of the elect, I endure all things, and verse 12, if we endure. But the whole thing has to do with endurance. And keeping it in mind will help us to endure. So think about this saying, Paul says. The first statement has to do with sanctification. It is an echo of Romans chapter 6. Listen to it again. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. Now, over to Romans chapter 6, listen to some familiar words that were read earlier in the service. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know? that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Baptism is a picture of our identification with Christ in death and burial and resurrection. When we go into the water of baptism, it's like we're saying the old me is dead. And when we come out of the water, we're saying there is a new life now in Christ. I'm a new creation in him. And so uh, if you look, in fact, at at verse 8 of Romans 6, he says, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Sounds just like the the saying here in 2 Timothy, or down in verse 11. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. If we have died with him, we also will live with him. It's about our sanctification. God wants to make us more and more like Jesus. New life in Christ begins when we put our trust in him as Savior. And from that point forward, we are living that new life in him. And it goes on forever. Sanctification. Second statement has to do with endurance. It's the direct link between this song and the rest of the section. If we endure we will also reign with him. The point is that enduring now, enduring hardship now, leads ultimately to reigning with Christ in his kingdom. There will be ultimate victory for all who endure. 
It will be worth it all. We will look back on the present sufferings as a distant memory. Reigning with Christ will make it all worthwhile. Endurance. Third statement has to do with apostasy. It's referring to some people who have left the faith. Third statement, if we deny him, he also will deny us. Apostasy. The names of those who have left are given to us here in verse 17. Hymenaeus and Philetus. And Paul tells us, if we ultimately deny Christ, he will deny us. Jesus said it himself in Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 and 33. He said, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. This is referring to people who ultimately walk away from the faith, like Hymenaeus and Philetus. This isn't referring to unbelievers. It would have to be in the present tense, not the future tense. And we'll talk about that more in a moment. But what this is talking about is apostasy. People leaving the faith, walking away from the faith. And the fourth statement has to do with faltering. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Faltering. Like Peter we falter. We look pretty faithless sometimes. The response we choose often isn't the response of faith. But ultimately, we rely on God's grip and not our own. One commentator put it this way, our future hangs not on the strength of our faith but on the strength of God's faithfulness. The faithfulness of God depends on his character, not our character. Our character is so faithless, so fickle, so faltering, and he is so faithful. Faltering. So, sanctification, endurance, apostasy, faltering. A brief summary of this faithful saying, this trustworthy statement. I believe the whole thing has to do with endurance. The Christian life isn't a cakewalk. God desires our sanctification. He desires that we become more and more like Jesus. If we died with him, symbolized in our baptism, then we are raised to new life where we live with him. Dead to sin, alive to God in Christ. And that path of sanctification involves some hard things. If we endure them, and uh, we, we can endure them knowing that it will be worth it in the end. We will reign with him. We avoid the errors of some in the church of Ephesus, denying the faith and becoming apostate, facing the day when Jesus ultimately says, depart from me, I never knew you. And if we falter in our faith walk, we can know that God who saved us is faithful and unchanging, more eager to welcome us back than we are to face him. 
Now, all of that may be, may be about as clear as mud to you right now. It certainly was for me. Uh, but then I discovered something in the text as I was preparing these last couple of weeks that I want to show you because it helped me a lot. And I think it may clarify some things for all of us. So are you ready for a little Greek? You've met Ulysses before. He's our little Greek friend. He's little and he's Greek and you've met him. So now you can say, I know a little Greek. Okay, but this time we, we don't have any vocabulary, any interesting English words that you recognize in Greek words. Uh, what we have this time is some tenses of verbs. And you're thinking, boy, this is going to be fun. Hang in there. Hang in there. All right, so little chart here. So here's, here's the first part. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. And the first part of that is in the aorist tense in Greek. You may have heard of the aorist tense. It, it has to do with point action, something that takes place at one particular point in time, not ongoing, but point action. And 99% of the time, it's in the past. So we think of the aorist tense as a past tense, but more importantly, it's a point action sort of thing. So he's saying, if we died with him, point action sometime in our past. Okay, some point in our past, we came to the point of saying, Jesus, I want you to be my savior. I want you to come into my life. Kill the old me and give me new life in you. And the Greek construction of that phrase, this if phrase, assumes a positive response. And so it literally is since we have died with him. So since we died with him, we will live with him. From the point of our dying in him forward, we are alive in Christ. So it goes from aorist to future. So we died with him, symbolized in our baptism, and we live with him now into the future. Aorist to future in the first part of the trustworthy saying. Okay, second part of the trustworthy saying, if we endure, we will also reign with him. If we endure, present tense, we're gonna face some hard things. We need to endure. If we endure, future tense, we will also reign with him in glory, in his kingdom, and it will be worth it. Present, future. Third one. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we deny him is future. It's literally, if we will deny him, if we will deny him in the future, that is, if we apostatize future, he will deny us. So it's future, future. And then, that he will deny us is, is really the words of Jesus from Matthew chapter 10. Fourth part of the saying, if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. It's present and present. If we are faithless, if we falter like Peter did, God's grip is still strong. It never depended on your grip anyway. He remains faithful. He is ready to restore because he can't deny himself. 
What encourages me is that it's God's faithfulness that ultimately matters as we go through tough times. And though we may falter, he is there to catch us. The name Rich Mullins might not mean much to many of you. He was a Christian recording artist that I enjoyed a lot. He's with the Lord now. He wrote a great song called If I Stand. And the chorus is, if I stand, let me stand on the promise that you will pull me through. And if I can't, let me fall on the grace that first brought me to you. It's God's grip and not ours that ultimately matters. That's what's going to pull us through. We falter. He's faithful. Many of you have read Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. It is a good read. I would recommend it. Very helpful, I think, in understanding this last point. In chapter 9 of that book, Ray or- or Dane Ortland talks about Christ as our advocate with the Father. Based on 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So Jesus is our advocate with the Father. And the question is, when does he advocate for us? The answer is, he advocates for us as the enemy makes accusations against us. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, we find Satan identified as the accuser of the brethren. He is eager to accuse us before the Father. And the point is that we need an advocate not to convince the Father, but to counter the accuser. When we stumble, when we falter, Satan is quick to accuse And Jesus is faithful to advocate for us against every accusation. And he does it as we falter. He does it as we sin. He does it as Satan makes his accusations. Not after we've gotten over the guilt of it ourselves. Now think about that for a second because it's really important. He is doing it as we sin. He is advocating for us before the Father to counter the accusations of the enemy. And he doesn't wait until we feel better about what we've done. I had a dog once who would sometimes have an accident in the house. I'd come home and I'd see it and I'd call him over and point it out to him. You know what he looked like at that moment? That's not my dog, it's somebody else's dog, but it's the same look. You know what that look is? It's shame. That's shame. And that's the way we feel about our sin. We want to avoid the gaze of the master. But Jesus advocates for us at the very point where the enemy is accusing us. Not when we've gotten over the guilt of it ourselves. J. 
James tells us we all stumble in many ways. We falter in our faith. And at the moment when we do, we have an advocate with the Father who counters the accusations of the evil one. Want endurance? Think about Jesus. Think about the elect. Think about this saying. Endurance. Think about Jesus, real and risen. Think about the elect waiting to hear the gospel that we can bring, even though it may cost us to bring it. And think about this saying, God is sanctifying us, helping us to endure, giving us grace not to deny him, lifting us up when we falter because he is faithful and we would never make it on our own strength. You'll find some questions for further thought in your program. I hope you'll be able to make use of those in the coming week. Would you bow and pray with me? Father, we do all stumble in many ways. And we look at the sort of endurance the Apostle Paul had and showed, and, and we say that could never characterize us. But by your grace, it can. I pray, Father, that you would make of us a faithful people, an enduring people, a people that look to Jesus and so fill our minds with him that we can endure because he did. And he went the distance for us. And so as we are asked to endure for him, it becomes our privilege. And we can look also at the elect who yet need to hear and be reminded that we have a mission to reach them to inconvenience ourselves for them so that they too might receive the life-saving gospel. And Father, we think about this song that Paul quotes and other songs that have encouraged our hearts and we are grateful for the truths that they contain. And I pray, Father, that as we think about these things, that we would be faithful and desirous to honor and glorify you with our entire life. So we give ourselves to you, Father, and pray that you would continue that transforming work in us by your Spirit's power. In Jesus' name, amen.